Turn our attention to the Word of God from Ezra, chapter 8, verse 21 through 23. Today's verse that we're going to read is a lot shorter than the verses that we read through Ezra, but at least for those of you who were here last week, uh, at least you can say you've read every single verse, literally, that concerns the hand of God in Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, what you did was a biblical study on a theme in two books of the Bible. But today we're going to consider prayer, praying for protection specifically. And as we consider that, I want you guys to read with me silently as I read out loud the word of God from Ezra chapter 8 verses 21 through 23. Hear the word of God. Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You know, we're going to be considering what prayer is about. What do you guys think prayer is? What, what, when you understand prayer, right, what do, what do you think that's about? And a lot can be said about prayer. There are books that have been written on prayer. Uh, but if you were like me growing up, you thought, you, you thought that prayer was about getting things done in your life, right? It was almost a productivity app that you would use, right, to check off all the things that you needed to get done in your life. Prayer is not a productivity app. Uh, by the way, the reason why I compare it to that is because this week, or the past couple weeks, I've, uh, I've uh, gotten into uh, mind mapping and Kanban-style uh, task management. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but I thought I didn't like either of them before because it didn't fit all my needs, but it's a wonder what happens when you put the two together and you use one before you use the other, and you use both. Um, prayer, that app, those apps are very useful in getting things done, um, but prayer is not a productivity app. Prayer is not Kanban nor is it mind mapping, right? Prayer, if you want to break it down to its fundamental truths, it's about two things. In prayer, you're acknowledging God as God, that he's God, and secondly, that you're not. That's what prayer is about. Prayer is important, especially in our era, in an era where we, where society teaches us that there is no absolute truth. What's true for you may not be true for me, and that's okay. That kind of teaching dethrones God, exalts you, as, exalts you in his place. And you see, prayer counteracts that, because prayer acknowledges God as God and puts us in our place which is a very good and blessed place. There are three things about prayer that this passage is teaching us. 
by Ezra's example. And he was very human, right? Basically what he did, he basically proclaimed boldly, saying, we don't need any kind of protection because God will protect us, right? And now that he's about to go on this journey to Jerusalem, you know, he feels a little ashamed <laughs> because, you know, the human thought is, well, you know, maybe it would, have been, it would have been nice to have some military protection because going from where they were and going to the city, Jerusalem, it was a very dangerous route, right? You could get killed, right? And um, if you've ever felt any kind of uh, insecurity when it comes to your life, sa the safety of your life, then you can understand what Ezra felt. But yet, he, we have to admire Ezra because what he did was pretty extreme in some people's uh, thinking. He basically stuck to his word. He was, he was consistent. And he refused to ask for military help and escort as he traveled to Jerusalem on that dangerous path because he had faith in God, right? Um, I remember a lot of uh, EM pastors that I talked to, we all kind of make fun of the first generation and the second generation uh, difference when it comes to faith, right? Um, typically, what second generation English ministry pastors, what we say is, you know, first generation, you know, they emphasize faith so much that you almost have to be unwise to be really faithful to God. In meaning, you almost have, you almost have to have no plans, no structure, nothing decided for your future in order for you to come across as a person who trusts God, right? Like, don't worry about uh, planning for this mission trip. Just pray and just go, and that's faith, right? <laughs> right? Uh, English ministry pastors, uh, we, and I'm, I'm one of them, we try to uh, show the the well, the silliness of that, because we, God has given us a mind, and he has given us wisdom and knowledge to be able to exercise the God-given abilities that we have to plan well, to structure well, and to bring order to a certain situation, right? And that is trusting God. Another thing, another example is with preaching, right? You have, um, you have two models of preaching, um, in, in some way, if you think about it in one way. The first model is you don't prepare anything. You just take your Bible, right? Take your Bible, and then you open up randomly to a place. You look at a verse, and you just start preaching, right? That's Sunday preaching. That's what's really, that's what is spirit-filled preaching. That's what spirit-filled preaching is all about. And then you have another way of preaching where you spend hours and hours before Sunday uh, outlining and planning what you're going to say, right? Two forms, two approaches, right? Um, the thing with prayer is prayer is not about getting all your ducks lined up the way that you want them. That's not what it's about. But at the same time, prayer is not about having no idea what you want and no idea what to do and just talking to God. That's not prayer either, right? 
When you look in this passage, there are three major things that come up about prayer that's important for there to be real prayer. Number one is humility. Humility. And you see, when you approach prayer and you treat it like a to-do app, right? You treat it like task management, right? You go to God in order to get certain things done. There's not humility there. Actually, you're putting yourself on top of God and saying, God, I need you to do this for me. You're delegating to God. You're telling God what to do instead of him telling you what to do, right? That's not humility. In prayer, the posture of prayer is humility. When you look at Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, it says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of uh, Ahabah, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all all our goods. He prayed, and indeed he fasted, he proclaimed the fast, so that they can humble themselves before God. Right? Humbling themselves before God was an objective. That was an objective for prayer. Have you ever thought that prayer, the objective is so that I can humble myself before God? Have you thought about approaching prayer in that way? And what that means? It's not about fixing this or healing that. It's about God, I am here. I'm praying so that I can humble myself before you. So that I can acknowledge you are God and I am not. That's the objective, right? That we might humble ourselves before God. And you know what that means? When you do that, when you pray that that kind of prayer and you live that kind of prayer life, you open yourself up to vulnerabilities. Because since you're not treating prayer like a to-do app, you're not treating prayer as tasks that need to get done, you're actually leaving to God, you're you're leaving it to Him to decide what to do with this problem or this disease or this issue or this situation. You're leaving it up to Him. Right? In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14 it says, if my this is God talking If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's about humility. It's about humbling yourself before God. And that means, and this is the word, this is the Hebrew word for humble. It means you submit yourself to God and the opportunity to face reproach. What does that mean? That means you're giving to God your situation and you are basically saying, God, I said basically for Ezra, that would be God will protect us, right? And he's opening himself up to the opportunity by not asking for military support and an escort, he's basically opening himself up to an opportunity where he can get attacked, right? Because he has no military protection. 
And people will begin to say, see what happened? What a foolish guy. He should have just taken the military escort. Why did he refuse it? It's such, such pride. And like, why don't you just ask for that? You open yourself up to reproach. That's what that means. That's what that Hebrew word, humble, means. That's what humility means. Say, what, what is humility? That's what it is. It's depending on God, lowering yourself to a point where you say, I am not in control, you're in control, and I'm, I want this. It's not wrong to ask God for things. Ezra asked for it. Protection for himself, his children, and all his possessions that every, of everybody who was traveling to Jerusalem. It's not wrong, but the thing is, he's saying, all of this that I value and that I treasure and that I love, I commit it into your hands. It's yours to do with as you please. He opened himself up to reproach. And you see, prayer addresses that very human tendency in our hearts to not want to be vulnerable, to not want to be in a place where bad things can happen to me because I trusted in God and for people to ridicule me because I trusted in him. Right? Prayer counteracts that very human tendency. That's why it's about humility. Secondly, the heart of prayer, if the posture of prayer is humility, the heart of prayer is trust. Another word for trust is faith. If you look at verse 22 in Ezra 8, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, etc. Ezra trusted in God. He didn't trust in himself. Otherwise, he would have taken swords and, you know, taken some military procedures in order, or in strategies in order to protect himself. He didn't trust in the king because he didn't ask the king for military support as he traveled into, on a dangerous road. He didn't even trust in the desired circumstance, right? What that means is sometimes we go to prayer and we may... We may we can say, yeah, I'm trusting God. I'm praying to him, right? So I'm trusting him. I'm not trusting in myself or else I wouldn't, spend, I wouldn't waste my time praying. But what's interesting is there's a fine line between trusting God and trusting in the circumstances that God can give you. Let me say that again. There's a fine line between trusting God, the person himself, and trusting in the circumstances that he can give you, that he can bless you with. Very different from each other, right? And prayer is about trust and trusting the right source, who is God himself. What that looks like verbally and in life, well, in life, Ezra showed us. He refused military support because he didn't want he didn't want people to say, oh, look, he, he so boldly and courageously said, God's going to protect us, but look at him take those military soldiers. That really speaks in volumes, right? He didn't want anybody to have an opportunity to say that about God, so he put his own life, he put his own life in danger. Well, objectively, his life was not never in danger because God was protecting him, but subjectively, experientially, he felt, you know, as human beings, we feel our lives are in danger. Even though God in the future protects us, 
We don't know that for sure. It's not guaranteed in our minds. So subjectively, we think, I, my life is in danger right now if I go on this mission trip. But objectively, God can protect you. And we would never know that, though. Right? It's like Job. He never knows. He doesn't know what's going on between God and Satan. Right? Um, so our experience is very different from what's really true. Trusting God is at the heart of prayer. Not the circumstances that God gives. Right? John Piper put it this way. We need to seek, it's a paraphrase, we need to seek the giver, not the gifts. Right? That's what he said. Right? We can't idolize the gifts above the giver. Right? Now, what is trusting God, not yourself, not trusting yourself, not trusting others, and not trusting your circumstances that God can give you? What does that look like? Just to trust God as a person is so abstract. What does that look like? There is a concrete example in the Old Testament of three people who trusted God, who didn't trust themselves, who didn't trust others, and didn't even trust the circumstances that can come out. And if you want to, I, I want to encourage you, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verse 15 through 18. Three people who were in a life and death situation, who refused to trust themselves, refused to trust others, and refused to trust the good circumstances that God could have given, could have given them. Daniel chapter 3, verse 15 through 18. Now, if you are now, this is um, this is the king talking to these three Jews, and he's basically mad that these three Jews are not worshiping his image that he set up. He's mad, and to anyone who doesn't worship him, the king, he threatened that they would be thrown into a pit of fire, a fiery furnace, right? Um, this is historical. This actually happened. This is him talking, the king. Now, if you are ready, and he's addressing the three Jews. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, it's interesting that music is used for idol worship as for, and the worship of God, right? To fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Wow, right? I mean, <laughs> he's saying, I have all the power and I can kill you, so you better do what, you, what I want you to do and, because no one can save you, right? That's basically what he's saying. Verse 16, here's the astounding, God-trusting answer of these three Jews. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Man, man, that's, that's huge faith, right? But for me, the next part shows an even bigger faith. Verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Basically, these three Jews, what they said was, we're not going to serve your, your gods, right? And if you throw us into the fiery furnace, God's going to save us. We have no doubt about that. I know rationally, physically, I don't know how it's going to work out, but he's going to save us. And then they follow up. It doesn't end there. They follow up with, but even if God doesn't save us, we'll not worship your gods. And then after this, if you keep reading in Daniel, King gets so mad. He gets so mad. And then he starts heating the furnace much hotter. So hot that the people who threw these three Jews into the furnace, they didn't, they didn't even fall in, but they got burned up because it was so hot. Historical, right? Um, and of course, God saves these three friends, but that's not the point. The point, you know, with miracles, it's interesting. If you do a study on miracles in the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, the miracles always target the heart. It's never about the miracles themselves. Although we as human beings, we want to focus on the miracle and see, whoa, this is so amazing. How can I do something like this? The miracles are there to teach the word of God and to apply the word of God to the human heart. That's why miracles are there. That is an example of three historical figures, three Jews who have lived and died in human history, who trusted God the person. They didn't trust themselves because if they trusted themselves, they would have bowed down, the wor- bowed down and worshipped the image and try to survive as long as possible. They didn't trust other people because they didn't trust the king. They didn't plead to the king. They didn't ask him, please have mercy on us, right? We're just trying to be Jewish here. Why you got to be so racist, right? They didn't do that. They also didn't trust in the circumstances that God could have given them. They didn't say, God, please save us from this, you know, and that's what we want. They, honestly, they didn't care. They didn't care whether God would save them from the fiery furnace or whether he let them die. Because they had an eternal understanding of their relationship with God. They trusted the person of God, not themselves, not other people, and not even the circumstances that God would give them miraculously. Uh, Timothy Keller This is what he says in his book on prayer. We would never produce the full range of biblical prayer if we were initiating prayer according to our own inner needs and psychology. It can only be produced if we are responding in prayer according to who God is as revealed in the scripture. Some prayers in the Bible are like an intimate conversation with a friend. Others, like an appeal to a great monarch. And others, approximate a wrestling match. We must not decide how to pray based on what types of prayer are the most effective for producing the experiences and feelings we want. We pray in response to God himself. Let me see that last part. We must not decide how to pray based on what types of prayer are the most effective for producing the experiences and feelings we want. See, very different between a psychological between a psychological approach of prayer and a biblical approach of prayer. Psychological approach. You pray because it has been statistically proven that prayer raises the quality of life of patients. 
That's a psychological approach. There's a certain consequence you want, you aim for it, therefore you pray. Biblical, a biblical prayer does not rely on the circumstances and outcomes that prayer can produce. It relies upon the person of God who sent his son to die for your sins. It relies upon his character and his work when you pray. That's why we pray. That's what Keller is saying. And lastly, prayer. So there's humility in prayer. There's trusting in prayer. And then there's provision. Now here's the interesting thing. In Ezra... Ezra is making a trip from where he is, from a foreign land, to Jerusalem. He doesn't ask for anything other than proclaiming that God's going to help us. And he fasts and he prays because of that. Now, Nehemiah, he also makes a trip from where he's living in a foreign land to Jerusalem. But you know what? Nehemiah, he actually has a military escort. Isn't that interesting? So you have two people doing the same thing, journeying to Jerusalem to rebuild, right? Ezra to rebuild the people and the culture with the word of God and worship. And you have Nehemiah heading back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. They're, they have the same objective, right? They're going to the same place, leaving in a similar fashion. One, Ezra, doesn't have a military escort. Nehemiah does. He has a full military escort. See, God provides. And his provision is different. You see, when we look at prayer and we look at the provision of God, we expect that it needs to look the same way for it to be something that God provided or a prayer that has been answered, depending on how the outcome is. But you see, in both cases, Ezra and Nehemiah, God provided. Because you look in Ezra chapter 8, verse 23, the passage we read, so we fasted and implored our God for this because he was ashamed to ask the king for escorts. So he fasted and implored. Very human guy, right? Our God for this. And he listened to our entreaty. What that means is God protected him on the journey. Historically, nothing happened to them. They weren't attacked. God answered somehow without a military escort. But you look in Nehemiah. I'm not going to read it because of lack of time. But Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 7 through 9 it records Nehemiah getting all the military support that he could have on his journey to Jerusalem. Who has more faith? Which one did God provide for him? Which one didn't? Well, the answer is yes to all of it. They all had faith. And God provided for all of them. It just looks different on the outside. And you see, then what is the point of prayer? Well, you see, if you ask that question after considering everything that we've considered today about prayer, you're still understanding prayer as a to-do app. You're still understanding prayer as something I can use to get something done in my life. And that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not a to-do app. Prayer is heart surgery upon your heart. That's what prayer is. God provided for both of them. You see, Ezra fasted, and he had no military escort. Nehemiah, he didn't fast, but he had military escort. But both of them prayed. 
Some people may look at that and say, wow, if God provided for Nehemiah after you know, just praying and with a military escort, I'd rather be in a Nehemiah situation, right? Well, when you say that, you have to understand you're still kind of stuck on prayer as a to-do app, if you think that way. If you think that Nehemiah is a better situation instead of being a different situation, then you're still thinking of prayer and, provision, and God's provision and trusting in God as a to-do app, right? And it's not. What about fasting then, right? Fasting is kind of popular now, right? Both in secular and Christian circles. And you say, well, look at Nehemiah. He didn't even fast, right? And he got what he wanted. I guess I don't have to fast then. Well, you're missing the point of fasting too. Fasting is not about securing a certain desired circumstance. Again, fasting is not a to-do app either. Like prayer, fasting is about humbling yourself before God and trusting Him no matter what your outcome looks like or feels like. Historically, if you divide the Jews, the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament into two categories, before they got exiled and after they got exiled, right? Before they got exiled, they only fasted, the, the whole community, the whole, they had private fastings. They did that whenever, on special occasions. But as a community, as a public one body of God's people, they only fasted on one day. You know what that day was? Very important in Jewish history. The Day of Atonement. That's when the entire community fasted together. You know what our modern, uh, our modern uh, parallel is? It's Passion Week. That's why some Christians fast on Passion Week. The Day of Atonement. Why would they fast on the day? What? There's nothing to accomplish or to get done in their lives, logistically, right, physically. The Day of Atonement was a spiritual matter. They were fasting on the Day of Atonement because of their relationship with God, not because of something they needed to get done in their lives. Right? Do you see that? And that's what fasting is for the Christian. This doesn't mean you can't have a dietary fast. It's like, oh, you're going on a dietary fast? You're being unbiblical, right? You can't say that. But as a Christian, if you're going to fast by faith, right? If you're going to fast as a, as a believer, right? Not for dietary reasons, but for spiritual reasons, it should never be to ask God to get certain things done. It's not wrong to ask God for certain things. But you can't make that the objective and the goal. You have to be willing to let go of that. When you are willing to let go of those things that you want God to work in your life, then it shows you that your heart is in the right place, that you are trusting God and not in the circumstances that he can give you. Right? Let me close with this. Again, bringing this whole conversation of prayer back to absolute truth and moral relativism. Do you guys know Ted Bundy? 
serial killer? Did you know he grew up in a Christian home? That he was like your perfect American child? He was also a lawyer. And when he got caught and when he was tried for the 36 victims that he admittedly killed, which people estimate that he actually killed about 100 people, he represented himself. And if you watch his last interview, the very last inf interview, the interviewer is like this. <laughs> He's very disturbed, right? But Ted Bundy, not only does he blame his entire serial killer problems on pornography, something outside of his own wicked and sinful heart, right? Which I'm not denying that pornography has, an, has a factor, but from a biblical point of view, the, con the problem of evil goes back to our own hearts. And that's why prayer is so important. Let me read for you what he said. This is a transcript from his courtroom, right? This is what he's saying before the court and before the people as he's being tried for murder. Then I learned that all moral judgments are valued judgments. Just a warning, it's going to get a little bit philosophical, right? But not so much that you can't understand it. That all valued judgments are subjective and that none can be proved to be either right or wrong. This is Ted Bundy speaking. I even read somewhere that the Chief Justice of the United States had written that the American Constitution expressed nothing more than collective value judgments. Believe it or not, I figured out what apparently the Chief Justice couldn't figure out for himself, that if the rationality of one value judgment was zero, multiplying it by millions would not make it one whit more rational. Nor is there any reason to obey the law for anyone like myself who has the boldness and daring the strength of character to throw off its shackles. I discovered that to become truly free, truly unfettered, I had to become truly uninhibited. And I quickly discovered that the greatest obstacle to my freedom, the greatest block and limitation to it, consists in the insupportable value judgment that I was bound to respect the rights of others. I asked myself, who were these others, other human beings with human rights? Why is it more wrong to kill a human animal than any other animal? This goes back to my previous sermon about how we're not political animals and how important it is to understand that, right? This is where that kind of logic comes. This is where it ends up, right? So again, why is it more wrong to kill a human animal than any other animal, a pig or a sheep or a steer? Is your life more to you than a hog's life or to, uh, is, is your life more to you than a hog's life to a hog? Why should I be willing to sacrifice my pleasure more for the one than the other? Surely you would not in this age of scientific enlightenment declare that God or nature has marked some pleasures as moral or good and others as immoral or bad. In any case, let me assure you, my dear young lady, that there is absolutely no comparison between the pleasure I might take in eating ham and the pleasure I anticipate in raping and murdering you. That is the honest conclusion to which my education has led me. After the most conscientious examination of my sponta spontaneous and uninhibited self. This is where you end up when you take God out of the picture and you exalt yourself in his place and you lose all 
inhibitions, all social inhibitions, because you have finally understood the logic of what it means to have no God. In fact, he is the most consistently and faithful atheist. One of, one of the ones who are most consistent and faithful to atheism that has ever lived. Because this is where it ends up. You see, for the Christian, because we love God and because we believe that a God exists, our actions, we end up loving people. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the logic of believing in a God and worshiping God. You end up loving your neighbor. The logic and the rationale that, that flows from a worldview where there is no God, it ends up in a place where you become God and where you can kill off people as you please. And it's nothing worse than eating ham or killing an animal. Very recently, so what's our answer to this, right? Well, the answer is very well articulated by Rachel Den Hollander's address to Larry Nasser. A gymnast had the perfect answer to moral relativism that Ted Bundy lived by. On January 24, 2018, Rachel Den Hollander addressed the court and former abuser Larry, Larry Nasser. And what I am about to read you, read to you, is taken from an article written by Justin Taylor on the Gospel Coalition. This is an excerpt of what she said to her abuser. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, you have read the Bible you carry. You, have, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which, requ which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you throw into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing, and that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. 
though I extend that to you as well. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. How did I get this idea of just, unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you. Because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. That's what happened to Ted Bundy. And that's what happens to each of us when we allow our hearts to be hardened and we protect it away from the convicting word of God and we protect it away from the work of Jesus Christ as it tells us that we, all of us, are in desperate need of a Savior and Lord. That's why prayer is a guard for our hearts against sinful stubbornness like this. And when we cease to pray, I'm not talking about the ritual. I hope you guys understand that by now. I'm talking about the humility, the trust, and the provision that is associated with prayer. When we neglect that, we are walking on a path that is not so different from people like this. So I challenge you, continue to cultivate your heart so that it is soft and fertile to the work of God. Soft with humility, fertile with trust, so that you can know the provision of God, no matter what it looks like and no matter what it feels like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together to look at your word and to see that in prayer, more than just the ritual of words, more than trying to get something done through it, more than a means to an end, Lord, help us to understand that prayer is heart surgery. It's surgery upon our own hearts. Help us to know what true humility is, to know what it means to trust in you, and to know what it means to see your provision in our daily lives. So God, be glorified and keep us a praying people. We pray in Jesus' name. Please arise with me as we sing our response.